Now we give a very warm welcome to everyone joining us for worship this evening, both those in the building and to those joining with us uh, online. Let's begin by singing to God's praise in Psalm number 25. It's page 231 of the Psalter and it's at the beginning of the song. To thee I lift my soul, O Lord, I trust in thee, my God. Let me not be ashamed, nor foes triumph o'er me. Let none that wait on thee be put to shame at all, but those that without cause transgress, let shame upon them fall. We'll sing verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 25, the first verse. To thee I lift my soul. together in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we pray that as we sing these songs, we will stop and ponder the truths contained within them. We have been reminded again in this song this evening that true worship is soul worship. It is spiritual. But not only is it spiritual, it is in truth and we realize that this book that you have given us is full of the truth that you have conveyed to us as a human race. And so we pray that our attitude to you would be the same as the psalmist 
who said, Show me thy ways, O Lord, thy paths, O teach thou me. But our confession is that sometimes we know what your ways are, and you know what you have commanded of us, but there is a stubbornness and a determination within us to do something else. And our prayer is that you would give us the grace that would enable us to bow the knee to you and to acknowledge you for who you are and to do your bidding. Alas, each and every living day we rebel. But we pray that we would come afresh each day to the place of repentance and that each day we would confess our sins to you knowing that if we confess you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The song speaks about you being the God of salvation. You are our only hope. We are rebels of the darkest hue. We haven't a leg to stand on. We have forfeited everything. But we win everything through your mercy and your grace. And may we remember the words of the song that says that we should attend on you all day long. Not just for salvation, but for everything. You are the God of creation, but you are the also God of providence. You supervise your creation, and in that supervision, you attend to our every need. We look around this world this night, and we realize that we are very, very well off indeed. There may be stresses and strains, and there most certainly are issues. But... Uh, Relatively speaking, we have so many blessings. We pray that we would count them every day and that we would honour you for them. We would remember places like the Ukraine this night and indeed other war-torn spots throughout the world. We view these things from a distance. We cannot enter into them. But we would pray for peoples on both sides of the conflict who are broken hearted, who have lost loved ones. It looks as if by the tens of thousands. O Lord our God, we pray that where there are people who are wielding influence and who have authority but who are abusing that, that they would be taken down. And that is true not just of Putin and his regime, that is true of other people in positions of leadership in Western countries who are bent on destroying the Word of God, who have another agenda entirely, an agenda that is not good and not wholesome. We think of our young people and all the pressures and dangers that they are exposed to from the word go now, something that many of us in our young days knew nothing about. But we pray that you would remember us, Lord, in your mercy and that you would indeed help us. 
Remember those who are in positions of power and influence, who believe in you and seek to honour you, but who are up against it. We pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them and bless them. Remember us, we pray, as a congregation and everybody uh, within the congregation. All face stresses and strains and difficulties. We would ask you for the wisdom and the common sense and the grace to deal with whatever comes our way in a way that would redound to the honour and the glory of your name. We remember our church in days of coming General Assembly. O Lord, have mercy on us and guide us in ways that are wholesome and God-honouring. Be with us now, we pray. Bless us one and all. And all we ask is in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's sing again to God in the same song, Psalm 25, the first verse, page 231 of the Psalter, and it's at verse 6. Thy tender mercies, Lord, I pray thee to remember, and loving kindnesses for thee have been of old forever. My sins and faults of youth, do thou, O Lord, forget after thy mercy think on me. And for thy goodness great. We'll sing verses 6 to 10 of Psalm 25. Thy tender mercies, Lord. God's word as we find it in the book of Psalms and at chapter uh, 25. 
the book of Psalms and at chapter 25 and it's at the beginning of the chapter of David to you O Lord I lift up my soul O my God in you I trust let me not be put to shame let not my enemies exult over me indeed none who wait for you shall be put to shame they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous make me to know your ways O Lord teach me your paths lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation for you I wait all the day long remember your mercy O Lord and your steadfast love for they have been from of old remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love remember me for the sake of your goodness O Lord Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness, for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. For it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let, not, let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God out of all his troubles <clears throat> Amen and may God bless to us that reading of uh, his word let's join together again in prayer let's pray O Lord our God we pray that as we turn to explore this area of scripture that you would deal with us in your tender mercy that this song speaks about. 
The psalmist touches on so many things. He is lonely and he is afflicted. His troubles are great and he wants release from his distress and he realizes that only you can do it for him. May we remember that as we fill our lives at times with so much fear and anxiety wondering how on earth we're going to get through particular predicaments. May we come to your footstool with all our needs. The psalmist cries that you would forgive his sins. They are great. So are ours. The psalmist's predicament is he is amongst many foes and they are a bitter. And we understand these foes times to be other human beings but not always we live in the realm of spiritual warfare and there is a great foe far too powerful for us to take on principalities and powers in high places the prince of the power of the air and his aim is to destroy everything pertaining to God and certainly the family of God And we know the onslaught of that warfare. We would ask you to help us. And we would ask you to give us direction in lives that sometimes we have to confess are so rudderless because we wander away from you. O Lord our God, help us to remember in the words of this song that we must attend upon you each and every day because each and every day has its new needs so be with us we pray guide us bless us and all we ask is in Christ's name Amen now let's continue to sing to God's praise in this same song Psalm 25 the first verse it's page 232 of the Psalter Now for thine own name's sake, O Lord, I thee entreat to pardon mine iniquity, for it is very great. What man is he that fears the Lord and doth him serve? Him shall he teach the way that he shall choose and still observe. We'll sing verses 11 to 14 of Psalm 25. Now for thine own name's sake.
Now let's turn to the portion of scripture that we've read. Actually, I'm going to read it from the the metrical version that we've been singing. Um, So we'll turn to the Psalter, page 233 of the Psalter, and it's Psalm 25 at the beginning. To thee I lift my soul, O Lord, I trust in thee. My God, let me not be ashamed nor false triumph o'er me. Let none that wait on thee be put to shame at all, but those that without cause transgress, let shame upon them fall. Now let's by God's enabling seek to explore something of what's in this (coughs) area of uh, scripture. There are three things that we would like to say a little bit about this evening that come up in these verses. First of all, the psalmist makes reference of his, his soul. He wants to lift up his soul to God. And I want to explore for a little while, what is a soul? And the second thing that he mentions that we want to say a little bit about is, he talks about trust. I trust in the, the Lord. What is that? And the third thing that we want to say something about is he mentions shame. In fact, he wants to be free from shame. He wants to be shame-free. What does that mean? So these three things, soul, trust, and shame, what exactly uh, do they mean? The first thing, though, before we look at that is to remind ourselves that this was a song written by King David. The song is 3,000 years old. I don't know how long the songs that are in the charts today will last, but I doubt very much if the world is still in existence in 3,000 years' time that many people will be singing them. But I do know this much, that if the world is in existence in 3,000 years' time, they will be singing this song. How do do I know that? Because God has made it very clear that whichever way things in the world work out, his church is secure and will last to the end of this present age. Age. And where his church is, there will be interaction with the word of God, including uh, these songs, including uh, these, uh, these psalms. Now, I don't know if it's right to say this, but certainly, you know, some of the psalms, we don't know who wrote them. Two of the psalms were written by David's son, King Solomon. Most of the psalms were written by this man, David. And there is something helpful in that because we have a great deal of the history of David in other areas of scripture. And you know, he was a man after God's own heart. But sadly he was a man after our own hearts as well. And his history is quite a checkered history. There's some of it, it's wonderful and it's wholesome and it's beautiful. And there are other parts of history that are the opposite of all these words I've just uh, used. 
And we see this man, for example, in Psalm 51, we see a man under deep conviction of sin, really deep conviction of sin. We see a man there who talks about broken bones. Now, as far as we know, we have no record of David ever literally having physical broken bones. It's obviously metaphoric language. It's obviously real pain within, pain in his soul because of his own folly and his own waywardness and his own wickedness and his own sin. But these things are hugely helpful for us. We may not have sinned in exactly the same way as David did. We may not be literal murderers. We may not be literal adulterers. But it is of tremendous solace to our souls when we see the man who is described as the man after God's heart who undoubtedly was one of the children of God get himself into all kinds of tangles and all kinds of difficulties and eventually pen a song like Psalm 51. So when we turn to these songs we know that there is somebody who's been through it all. In other words, we know there's somebody here with real experience and real maturity. Now, the reason I hesitate to say something like that is when I come down to this truth, all these songs are inspired by God. So maybe it doesn't, or maybe it shouldn't make all that much difference when we consider that God's inspired word is before us in these songs and indeed in the whole of the rest of scripture but whether it's right or not I do find it helpful when I'm going through these psalms to remind myself this is the David that we know all the history about speaking there is something helpful there but he begins this song by saying to thee I lift my soul and that does raise a question What is a soul? I mean, if I were to ask you tonight, tell me, what's a soul? What would you be saying? It's not all that easy to answer that question. It's like when people say to us, okay, you believe in God, tell me what God's like. How do you start, or where do you start? I I, I suppose you would go along the lines of, he's powerful he's he knows what beauty is this creation was created by his power and it's a beautiful creation and these things speak about who God is he's kind he's generous he gives us salvation he's just he's holy but if they go on to say What is a spirit? You tell me God's a spirit. What is a spirit? Sometimes these things are not easy to to, to deal with. And uh, I think it's similar to that when some... I mean, someone might ask us, what's a body? Well, we could start by answering that question by saying a body... Well, a human body has two legs, two arms, two eyes, one head, that, that kind of thing. But that's a very, very limited, that's a very limited uh, answer. Because I'm speaking just about the things that are obvious to our sight, you know, that we have two hands. 
someone might well say, what's a liver? What's a heart? What are kidneys? What's a pancreas? What's a pituitary gland? And it, it, it's, it gets deeper and it gets more complicated. But at least we can say something about a human body. But I think we can also say something about a human soul. Now, one of the things that we have to be clear about is sometimes we don't call it soul, sometimes we call it spirit. And we use these words interchangeably. But let's just call it a soul just now. As far as I'm aware, a soul has an intellect. You know, we talk about people having a soul, whether they're believers or not. And that's, the, that's what I'm talking about just now, in general terms. And um, a soul has an intellect. For example, if someone says two and two makes four, that's using out intellectual powers. Someone might go over to the bus stop there and they might read the timetable and they are putting into practice their intellectual capabilities and they read the times of the buses and they've got that stored and they know when the next bus is, uh, is coming. But we are more than intellect in our souls. We also have the capability of volition. In other words, we make decisions. We can do this or not do this. We can go there or not go there. We have a degree of decision making. And our decision making is usually tied up with our intellects. For example, let's go back to the bus stop. We read the, the bus timetable, we know when the bus is coming, we can know all these things, we can make a decision <clears throat> to go to that bus stop when that bus is due. That's a decision we make. If we decide we're not going, well there's no way that we're going to be going over to the town on the bus. <clears throat> but even when that bus comes along, we can make a decision to get on or to not get on. But you can see how your intellect and your capabilities to make a decision are involved. Now I know I'm oversimplifying things. I know I'm oversimplifying. But sometimes we need to do that. But then our emotions can come into it as well. For example, we might want to go over to town to meet somebody in a cafe that we like and to have a coffee with them and to have a blether with them. And so our emotions are going to be turned, are going to become part of the equation as well. So we go, we read the timetable on the, uh, uh, at the bus stop, we use our intellect, and we have decided we are going to get on this bus because, at an emotional level, we like the person we are going to see, and we're going to go over to have coffee with them uh, in town. Now, everybody has an intellect, everybody has volition and everybody has emotions whether they're believers or not now as far as intellect is concerned some people would deny this that they have a knowledge of God 
Some people will say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe that nonsense, it's all airy-fairy stuff, it's all fable, and that's the end of the story. Well, no, it's not actually the end of the story. Because God himself has a view on this. And God himself has made it very, very clear in his word. You just need to go to the very first chapter of Romans and read it with a remote degree of objectivity. And we are made aware there that everybody has a knowledge of God. Calvin called it the innate knowledge of God. A human being is made in such a way that as soon as we interact with the creation around us, we know that he is there. So the intellect is involved. But the volition, the decision-making capability is also involved. And in the first chapter of Romans, what you read there is about people who have this knowledge of God and they make a decision. And the decision that they make is this. I'm going to get rid of this knowledge. And the word that's used, at least the translation into English, is the word suppress. They suppress the truth. It's this idea of something bubbling up, bubbling up all the time, and you've got, you're, you're keeping it down and you're preventing it from coming up. It's the suppression of the truth. Now, it's not just that the intellect is used. And the volition, decision-making capability is used. The emotions come into this as well. Some people are desperate to get rid of the knowledge of God. And if you ask, why is that? God has been good to them. God has caused the rain to fall on them. And God has prospered them. And you would have thought that the response would be to acknowledge God and to thank him but it's not it's a real suppression and it's a real antagonism and you think well how does that work I think it works at this level not only do we have a knowledge of God that is innate that knowledge of God that we have is that he is a holy God but that's not at all We know something about ourselves. We also have a knowledge of our own sinfulness. But sometimes we just don't want to hear about it. And the way that some people deal with it is this. If I get rid of God, I get rid of my guilt, and I get rid of my sin, and I can be whatever I want and whoever I want. That's the day and age we live in. No objective truth. It's just what I make of it myself. And so you can see there that there's intellect involved, there's volition involved, and there are emotions involved. Now, of course, I would have to say something here about evangelism. Every believer here tonight knows all these things that I've just been talking about. But they also know that God is a God of mercy and grace. We have come to God in all our sins and in all our depravity and in all our wretchedness. And someone might well say, how dare you? How dare you come to God at all? 
Why don't you just stay away from God because you are who you are? Well, we dare to come to God because we have listened to God and God has not just asked us to come, he has commanded us to come. Because he's the God who has provided us a saviour in Jesus and a God who's willing to wash us and make us clean. That is what you call really good news. But there are many out there who know nothing about it. They don't understand it at all. And there's the challenge for believers to tell them, listen, you can afford to believe to, to allow God to exist. You can afford to be the greatest sinner in the world and still have hope by coming to him seeking his mercy. Their way of dealing with it is he's holy, I'm not, I'm just going to ditch him and suppress the truth. And what they do in their sojourn in life's journey, they have a soul. A soul that has intellect, a soul that has volition, and a soul that has emotions. What they do is this, or rather, what they don't do is, they don't lift up their soul to God. They are on the run from God. And that is not a good place to be. That is a really, really uncomfortable place to be. And they deal with that discomfort and they deal with the pain of it in all kinds of ways. Some turn to drink, some turn to drugs, some turn to music, some turn to work. They just Now, some of these things are perfectly legitimate. Work is perfectly legitimate. Family is perfectly legitimate. But only in its rightful place. But some people are just workaholics and, and the whole thing is about... I'm not going to face reality at all. I'm just going to embroil myself in this. And it's a kind of distraction. It's escapism. It's an escapism. And I think we understand why they're trying to escape. But the challenge for us is this. Is to get them to realize they don't need to be on the run from God. They can allow God to exist and they can allow themselves to be the greatest sinner in the world and there is still something that can be done about it because God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. But they don't want to lift up their souls to God. But that's not the way it is with this man here. He wants to lift up his soul to God. In other words... His innermost being, he wants to be at one with God. That's what's going on here. And that is an astonishing thing that a depraved and wretched human being can be at one with God. Or to put it another way, it's an astonishing thing that we can lift up our souls in worship to God. To thee I lift up my soul but he also goes on to say O Lord I trust in uh, thee and I think I preached a sermon not terribly long ago about where trust comes in as far as the believer is concerned because as far as, as being believers is concerned, all of these aspects come into it. Uh, intellect, 
volition and emotions. We believe in God because God has revealed himself to us. That's happened through creation and the way God has made us, as I've said already. But there's more than that. God hasn't just spoken to us in creation. God has given us this book, the Bible. And any believer will need to know something of the truth that's contained in the pages of Scripture. Now, someone might ask, well, how much do they need to know? Well, I'm not going to even try to answer that question as to how much they know. Someone once said, he die, me no die. That is the gospel. That is substitutionary atonement. I certainly can look back to the time, I'm not terribly sure when I was converted, but I can certainly look back to a time when I fled to Jesus in all my need. But if you ask me what was um, justification, or sanctification, or adoption, or redemption, or iniquity, or sin, or transgression, what the differences were, I wouldn't have had the remotest clue. Not the remotest clue. I don't want to get into how much you need uh, to know, but what I'm emphasizing this evening is that we need to use the intellectual aspect of our uh, souls. Now, of course, when we read the Bible, or maybe sit under the preaching of the Bible, or indeed hear it being discussed by others, or interacting with others, we're gleaning knowledge all the time. Sometimes we're not aware of it. Sometimes we're not aware of it. But our intellects are involved. And when someone becomes a believer, our decision-making capability is involved. We want Jesus, we flee to Jesus, we turn to Jesus, we use all kinds of language like that, but it is a decision. And the decision is, I'm not rejecting him anymore, I want him, I need him, I'm going to him. But not only does it involve uh, volition, it also involves our emotions. When, we, when it dawns upon us what Christ has done for us, Who's going to criticize the person that says, I love him for what he's done for me? Our emotions are all involved. Now it is true of a believer that regeneration has to take place. In other words, dead in trespasses and sins. But when we regenerate, there's something different. We are new creatures. But I think we would have to say this much. Someone can be dead in trespasses and sins and they've still got a soul. They've got a soul that's got intellect, they've got a soul that's got volition and they've got a soul that's got uh, emotions. But when someone is made alive, when someone is regenerated, these things move to a different level altogether. But they're still all involved. And so the intellect is involved. But it's not just intellect. I think in that sermon I preached recently I spoke about well, what the theologians call assent. 
but, but I find that word a bit confusing um, and I would rather use the word acceptance we listen to what God's saying in this word we've got the intellectual knowledge of what God's saying but we can then make a decision and say no I don't believe that and I'm not going to go along with that we have the we have the ability to make that decision but we also have the ability to make the decision to say I accept this I believe it assent the theologians call it but there is an acceptance but we're not there yet as believers and I think I used the uh, the illustration of a bridge I spoke about you go uh, from if you take it the Maryborough round about the Yallopal Road and you head west you come to Braemore Junction and not terribly far from Braemore Junction is the Corrishalloch Gorge and it's deep I think it's 200 metres deep if my memory serves me correctly and uh, I used to run across that bridge as a boy and never batted an eyelid a few years ago I went to it with the intention of crossing that bridge I couldn't cross it but not far from that bridge is another ravine and very very few people know about it and the only reason I know about it is um, when I was a boy I got a job in the summer holidays putting up a hill fence and the way they got to that hill fence was it saved them a long journey over the hills they went over this bridge that's over another ravine the difference between the two bridges is this the Kodishala bridge is a bridge open to the public and it's very very well maintained there's nothing at all wrong with that bridge the other bridge has been neglected for years and years some places the planks aren't even there and you have to cross that bridge with great care but I remember the first time I crossed that bridge I was absolutely terrified but the men who were with me were saying come on as long as you stand on these planks you'll be okay and that's because they had been over the bridge before I'm standing there looking at this bridge and they're telling me they're giving me intellectual knowledge you can make the decision to come across this bridge and I'm not crossing it for anything in the world but they've been over it and they trust the bridge and they want me to trust it as well and eventually I do trust it in fear and trepidation I trust the bridge and I, and I cross over it and that's the way it is with this thing that David here calls trust O Lord I trust in thee it's one thing to have an intellectual knowledge of God. It's another thing completely to say to God, I agree with what you're saying. I accept it. But there's another step. And that is to trust God. And that is so crucial. That we trust a God. What does David say? I trust in thee. And that's what we have to do as well. But there's something else he speaks about. He speaks about uh, shame. Or at least he says he doesn't want shame. He wants to be free from shame. Let me not be uh, ashamed. 
The question is this. When is a believer full of shame? A believer is full of shame when he or she sins. In fact, if we read verse 3, Let none that wait on thee be put to shame at all, but those that without cause transgress, let shame upon them fall. You see the link that's made between shame and transgression. So it's clear that's what the psalmist, that's what David is talking about. He's basically saying, please let me not bring shame upon myself, my family, my my country, and my God. That's what he's asking for. Now there are various words that are used for sin in scripture. And each word has a different meaning. For example, when the word sin is used in Scripture, the idea is to be aiming at a mark and, to, and hoping to hit it. But sin is when you don't hit the mark. Now, transgression is also used. In fact, that's the word in English that we have here. Transgression is when you cross over a border that you're not meant to cross over. For example, if you go onto the A9 there, there is um, there's a barrier in the middle of the road, and the barrier's in the middle of the road for a very good reason. It's so that you don't cross over, because crossing over would be very, very dangerous. You cross over that line in your car and head up uh, the dual carriageway in the wrong direction, and soon it's going to be pretty catastrophic. That's what transgression is. But it's not just the word sin and uh, transgression that are used sometimes the word iniquity is used and in fact in Psalm 51 David describes his sin as, uh, as iniquity and iniquity is that's referring to, to to our twisted and depraved inner being I, I, I guess another word you could use for it is just the inner corruption that's what iniquity is. And David uses that word in Psalm 51 to describe his sin with Bathsheba. Now, what exactly is he talking about? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He satisfied his sexual pressure in a way that was not right before God. Now he had a sexual appetite, everybody does have, and there is, a, there is a framework within which that is addressed. And he knew that. He was a married man, and he knew the framework. But he allows the inner corruption and the inner depravity to win the day, and it is a rebellion against God, and that's where it has all started. And it is that inner corruption and depravity that is at the root of it all. It doesn't end, it's, it's, it's the old story. Wherever you rebel against God, wherever there is sin, it is a snowball effect. And sadly the snowballing effect of David's adultery was that he went on to tell lies and he went on to watch a man being very drunk and he went on to uh, watch, or not literally watch, but uh, be, he was behind uh, the murder 
of Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband. But there is an overlap between sin and transgression and iniquity. Sin is to just miss the mark. Transgression is to go over a border that you're not meant to go over. Iniquity is the corruption within winning the day and controlling, uh, controlling your life. And that is what David wants to be free from. Why does he want to be free from it? My guess is he's had enough of it. And what I mean by that is this. He speaks about broken bones in Psalm 51. He was a broken, broken man. He once rejoiced in God. He's not rejoicing in God anymore. Why is he not rejoicing in God? Because God's the same God. He's not rejoicing in God because he's been foolish. And he's been wayward. And he's allowed his own depravity to win the day. And there are always consequences to that. And so he's down, and it looks as if he's almost out, except he's not. Because God hears him, and God helps him. You won't hear of him rejoicing in Psalm 51, that hasn't happened. But you will hear of him rejoicing in other songs that he has written. He's had enough of shame. Because he knows in his own personal experience what the consequences of it are. Of his rebellion is. And for that reason he doesn't want any more of it. But there's another reason. He knows that God should be honoured. And for the honour of God's name. He doesn't want shame in his life. And so here he is. And what's he doing? He's lifting up his soul to God. The God that he really trusts in. And the God before whom he wants to have no more shame. And I wonder what our attitude to God tonight is like. Is it an attitude that is similar to this man, David? I hope it is. I hope it is. I hope we are here this night. Not just to go through... An empty ritual of worship. But to engage in worship that is soul worship. That is spiritual worship. And that is tied up with the truth of God. So that we engage uh, our intellect. And we engage our volition. And we engage our emotions. As we seek to lift up our souls to be at one with God. May that be true of each and every one of us. Let's conclude by singing the last few verses of Psalm, uh, this very song, Psalm 25. It's page 232 of the Psalter, the first version, and it's at verse 20. Oh, do thou keep my soul, do thou deliver me, and let me never be ashamed. Because I trust in thee. To the end of the song, O do thou keep my soul.
mercy and peace from Father, Son and Holy Spirit rest on and abide with